reading from down to chapter 3. Now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The snake deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the snake, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put an enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to child, children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the Tree of Life. Thank you so much, James. Let's pray for a minute. Our Heavenly Father, as we have uh, looked at these foundational chapters at the beginning of Genesis, at the beginning of the Bible, thank you that you have taught us, that you have um, laid or strengthened foundations of understanding from which all other things flow. And we ask that you will continue to build that picture for us so that we would not only understand your word more, but believing it and trusting it and trusting you, that we would understand ourselves and you better. And indeed, that through trusting Christ, we would understand where we can find hope and rest and deliverance from the troubles of this world. We ask, Lord, that you will bless our, our reading of your word this morning. Deep in our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
What's wrong with the world? <clears throat> and indeed, why? Alongside um, the question we looked at last week, uh, what's the purpose of life? What are we made for? That second question is absolutely fundamental to life. Almost no one disagrees that things are wrong. You may meet a Buddhist occasionally who insists that there's no such thing as, as wrong. It's just that we're not sufficiently enlightened and, uh, and detached from this world of samsara. You, you might occasionally meet a sort of radical new atheist who proclaims that there is no good or evil. Um, everything just is. But I don't think more than one in a thousand people really believes that. We all believe that things have gone wrong with this world, that it is very deeply rooted in history, that it is very widespread throughout the world, and that it is actually deeply rooted in us, in our experience, in our hearts. Things are not the way they were supposed to be. What's gone wrong? Why? Anything, uh, anything that sets out to be foundational in our understanding of this world is going to need to provide an answer to that great question. Any prescription of how to live in this world is going to need to explain what has gone wrong and why. Some people identify the problem as fundamentally economic. We just need to level up or redistribute according to which political party you belong to. And, uh, and suddenly everyone's life will get better and better. Some people um, suggest that um, all, our, all our ills uh, stem from disenfranchisement and uh, uh, just uh, democracy will, all, will, will automatically bring human beings into a better and better world. Some people focus on ignorance and their priorities then are education, education, education. Some people root our ills in, in our sci psychological pain. We need therapists, we need help, we need something to help us to, to adjust and, and, uh, uh, and, and find health deep in our hearts. But frankly, all of those solutions are good things, but they do not penetrate deeply enough. Economic inequality, for instance, seems to be as much a symptom as a cause of our woes. You try to level up and, and someone gains power and, and uh, uh, makes themselves more wealthy at the expense of others. Education doesn't always help. Nazi Germany was very well educated. In our therapeutic, uh, therapeutic age, it's becoming increasingly clear that... Uh, the need for therapists is, seems almost infinite. And as we become more and more and more concerned about our own pain, we protect ourselves more and more from others who may cause us pain, and the divisions just get deeper and deeper. Now, th those, those diagnoses, they, they have something to say to us. They... They describe our ills up to a point, but they do not penetrate deeply enough. Last week, we, uh, we um, looked at that first fundamental question. What is my purpose? What am I made for? Um, in, and how Genesis chapters 1 and 2 answers that. I tried to make a case that it answers the meaning that the question about our purpose more profoundly again than other alternative worldviews might do. We were made in the image of God. We were made to rule this world and care for it and look after it. 
on behalf of God. We were made to enjoy it, to order it, to be creative in it, to enjoy great freedom with restraint in it. We were made to live in relationship. Do you remember that in Genesis 2? Especially male and female relationships. Rich, deep, mutual, equal, complementary relationships. That's what we're made for, says Genesis 1 and 2. But this week, Genesis 3 is now going to tell us this, the, the, its answer to that second question. What has gone wrong and why? And I want I hope to try to persuade you that the Bible gives us a deeper, more persuasive, more satisfying, and actually more hope-filled diagnosis than anything else. What has gone wrong and why? Well, Genesis 3 tells us a story. To understand uh, the story, we need to remember Genesis chapter 2, which set the scene. The man and the woman were placed in a garden, the Garden of Eden by God. They were given enormous freedoms. There were precious metals and stones up in the hills, do you remember, to, for them to mine and make things out of. There were all kinds of animals for, for, the, for, them, for the man to name and for them to enjoy. They were, they were given freedom to eat from any tree in the garden, says God to Adam. Just one prohibition, but not from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Genesis 3 tells us, they refused to follow that one simple limitation God had set on them. They ate the fruit. We don't know what fruit it was. One Bible scholar suggests it was an apricot. There's a good, fig is a good candidate. Um, the, only, um, the only reason that apple has got cemented in uh, Christian minds is because by a pure accident, the um, Latin word for apple is malum, which means bad. And so um, uh, Christians started to believe, well, it must have been an, uh, an apple. There is no reason to uh, suppose that. Whatever it is, is not significant anyway. It is the fact and reality of this first disobedience. The text is careful to show us that it is not provoked by God. Genesis 2 was, was um, designed to show us how good God's creation was, how wonderful it, 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 uh, it was, how much freedom and liberty they had, how many endless generations of enjoyment and discovery and creativity that could have laid before them. Uh, every tree in the garden was permitted to them. Those trees were good for food and pleasing to the eye. There was a wonderful gloriousness about it. There was no ugly fruit. I don't know where they appear in the, in the story of uh, uh, creation, but uh, they weren't there at the beginning. Only one fruit was forbidden. The fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Only... Uh, uh, that, that, that tree stands there as simply in some ways a symbol. Who wants to know good and evil? If when God made us, we only knew good. It's described in a, in a minute as that the, the, the fruit of the tree was good for gaining wisdom. Because wisdom is about how to live in a fallen, broken, and difficult world. And who needs that wisdom if the world is only good? I said last week that there's knowledge that you and I do not want to have. We do not want to know the taste of poison. 
It is a, a, an illusion to think that all knowledge is good. Just do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, says God. But they did just that. Like, like spoilt brats who are given enormous freedom and uh, uh, abundant amounts of food and every, anything that they could, uh, they could wish for. But mum and dad say, no, you can't do that. And that becomes the focus and the attention of the whole child's existence. The child becomes convinced that mum and dad are being uh, unnecessarily, un unwisely restrictive. And of course, in situation after situation, that child finds how wise their parents' advice was. So too with the man and the woman. It was not provoked by God. It is in one sense, their rebellion is in one sense, in a deep sense, uncaused. But it is rooted as well in a misunderstanding of God's commands. Did you notice, uh, we'll come back to the to why there's a snake involved in, the, in a minute, but just look at the conversation. Um, chapter 3, verse 1. The snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Of course, he didn't say that at all. He said you can eat from any tree in the garden, just not this one. But the snake has, has distorted it. How many people do you think there are in, in today's world who never take God or the Bible or Jesus or Christianity seriously because they've just been fed some kind of di uh, uh, distortion that turns them away from God? It is one of the classic strategies. H.L. Mencken defined um, uh, Puritanism, for instance, as the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy. Those Christians would like to take you back into the dark ages. Don't even open their book. That's been said about me in a public meeting in Oxford. No, there are, there are, there are serious questions that Christians need to ask. There's serious reflection. No one wise becomes a Christian just, um, just on a whim. We need to think about it. But we need to think about what the Bible really says. Not just by the propaganda of the snake. But from that distortion which um, uh, raises questions un warranted questions about the goodness of God. The woman herself reveals a slightly more subtle but equally dangerous distortion. The woman said to the snake, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. God never said don't touch it. What's she doing? She's doing what has been described by, um, was described by later Jews as putting a fence around the law. That is, there are commandments of God, but a wise and judicious uh, uh, teacher and leader will erect a big fence that is a good way beyond those uh, specific prohibitions to keep people really safe. The problem is it doesn't work. The problem is that what it does is it starts to make Christians believe that God is forbidding things that he doesn't. 
you know, drunkenness is a terrible thing. So let's put a big fence up and say no one should ever drink any alcohol, said the prohibitionists in early 20th century America. Or um, uh, uh, um, lust is a terrible thing. So let's make women dress in as drab and uh, uh, uninteresting way as we possibly can. Injustice in this world uh, is a terrible thing. So in Britain, let's have laws that prevent uh, Jews and atheists, for instance, to be becoming MPs. Britain did that. You see, we need to take heed. The people who invented the idea of a fence around God's laws were a religious group amongst the Jews called the Pharisees. And those of you who have read the Gospels know what Jesus thought of them. Adding restrictions, you see, beyond what God actually says, leaves us vulnerable, as the woman is, to the accusation that God's commands are cruel and oppressive, and surely we should overturn them. And then on the back of that, the distortion, the, the, the misunderstanding on the part of the woman comes the outright lie. Verse 4, you will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman. How many people discover that they have believed lies too late? You know, I've, oh, Judy and I have sat in the parents' evening of a secondary, an unnamed secondary school in Oxford and had a, a parent in Oxford say to, the, say to the teachers, how much dope can my son smoke on the night before and still be, and be okay to study the next day? the son of her almost next-door neighbours lapsed into permanent serious mental illness from smoking dope. Sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend, that's just a rite of passage towards adulthood, isn't it? Devoting yourself to money for the rest of your life, that's going to make you happy. Um, greed is good. And who knows how many other lies that people believe and follow and find far too late the trail of destruction in their own life as, uh, as a result. No, we are people who believe the lie. We believe the distortion. We are softened up uh, by the, the belief that somehow God is a killjoy and putting unnecessarily restrictions on us. And then we are caught. And the snake knows as well that we are proud. He knows that then you will be like God, says the snake. Well, perhaps in a sense there is because God has contingent knowledge. So before evil existed, God knew of the existence of evil. But there would have been far more contentment not to be like God in that way. Nothing is more tempting, though, than to play God ourselves. Not content with being in the image of God, being faithful, having the extraordinary dignity of, of ruling and looking after God's world on behalf of him. We want to kick him off the throne and be our own gods. So we rebel. All the ills of mankind, I want to suggest to you, are encapsulated in this one story. We refuse to enjoy living in the world as God intended us to do. Because we misunderstand God's instructions, we distort them, we listen to lies, and ultimately, through our pride, we rebel to our destruction.
we're, we're going to expand on this in coming weeks as we look at some, some, some themes. So we're just skating through Genesis 3 at the moment to try to give you a sense of what is being described. So excuse me if we uh, um, uh, move forward and ask a second question. Whose fault is it? And of course, right front and center in the frame is the snake. I feel like um, uh, in Muppet's Christmas Carol where they said, no, it was the frog. The frog did it, you know. Um, uh, let's, uh, let, let's blame the snake. After all, the snake introduces that lie. Absolutely. The text of um, uh, Genesis 3 uh, leaves it unexplained what this talking snake is doing in the, in the garden. It's only later uh, on that it becomes clear that this is Satan. This is the devil. Um, this is the, the, the spiritual prince of darkness um, taking on the form of a snake in this, uh, in this story. Surely then, he's the originator. He's the one who falls first, isn't he? How can human beings be blamed when the when spiritual powers far more powerful than us have fallen beforehand? Well, it is worth noting that the consequences of the first sin do not start to come into being until the man has eaten the fruit. It is not so much that this is, this is describing first the fall of the snake and then the, then, the, then the following on, as the whole event that we are going to read is the fall of all of them, including the snake, including Satan himself, rebelling, but not ending with him. Indeed, not at all ending with him. Well, um, what about the woman then? What is she doing listening to an animal? It's one of the questions we're meant to, meant to ask. Um, clearly, in Genesis 1 and 2, the man and the woman have been set to rule over the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the animals on the, uh, on the land. The man has named the animals, a sign of his, 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 his jurisdiction over them. So what on earth is she doing listening to an animal? Now, it is true that she hadn't had the benefit of um, Disney's Jungle Book, um, uh, so that um, uh, uh, learning with that someone singing, trust in me, only me, is not a good thing to do. But <coughs> nevertheless, she's got enough evidence she should not be listening to this snake. But again... There are questions. For instance, she was not given the instruction, do not eat from the tree. She has received the instruction. The misunderstanding that she has, is it her fault? Or is it the fault of the person who passed on the message? It's very clear that the sin has not reached its completion when she eats the fruit. Which takes us to the man. Verses 6 and 7. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then, and we should say, and only then, the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. He is going to bear particular responsibility when God comes to speak to to them for this um, first 
rebellion. And he is the one who triggers finally their eyes being opened and them realizing that they were naked. Indeed, it is probably fair to say it's everyone is responsible. Indeed, it may be that the story is carefully crafted to indicate that. Because if you try to tell the story in other ways or in different orders, you find that there is always an innocent bystander. But this is carefully crafted to, to show there is no innocent bystander. Satan was absolutely involved in corrupting the woman and, uh, uh, and the man. And he cannot stand by and somehow say that they did it all and it's nothing to do with him. The woman is absolutely involved as she listens to the snake and eats the fruit. And she cannot stand by as an innocent part, uh, 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 bystander as she would have been if the snake had eat, uh, spoken to the man. The man had eaten it and their eyes had been opened. And as I've already said, their eyes are not opened until the man has eaten it. All three are implicated in a carefully crafted way to indicate their common individual responsibility, but in a sense as well, the man's titular responsibility for the whole thing. It was he who received the instruction. And he will bear the burden of responsibility. So what are the consequences? The consequences you are really pretty tightly bound together, but they can they can they, they appear in three phases. There are immediate consequences. Um, Verse 7, for instance, the eyes of both of them were opened. They realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This realization of their nakedness. Their nakedness up to then had been a source of wonderful, open, innocent delight. Remember the man exclaiming, she is woman, she is from man to man. She is a compliment to me. She is beautifully different from me. She is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. This is a wonderful thing. And the, and the visible manifestation of two complementary beings there is presented as being a beautiful thing. Now, suddenly, it becomes not beautiful. It becomes challenging, difficult. And they sew these fig leaves together, particularly to, to disguise what is complementary about them. Some people have wanted to root um, this story entirely in the, 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 the idea of lust. Suddenly they become lustful for each other. But it is deeper and wider than that. Lust is undoubtedly a, a, a part of it. But it is everything that goes with dealing with someone who is different. has become corrupted. Yes, beautiful sexual expression has become corrupted into lust. But actually, the fact that they are different with different contributions and different needs has been corrupted into threat. Teenagers uh, who at that very uncertain time of life feel the threat of uh, other people and other relationships instinctively often, often adopt uniforms because they belong to a crowd and that crowd is not threatening because they're not different. And there is something about hiding difference as well here because beautiful complementarity has become distorted in all kinds of ways, into threat and conflict. They are alienated from one another. And they are alienated from God. 
Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The man declares, we were afraid. They have fear of God. They hide from God, just as they've hidden from one another by donning these fig leaves. And there is now mutual recrimination between them. The man blames the woman when God says, what have you done? Woman blames the snake and the snake hasn't got a leg to stand on, as they like to say. It is the immediate consequences are alienation, conflict. But then there are curses that come on the back of that. Um, sorry, let's um, leave it at that. Then there are curses that come on the back of that. The snake is cursed, verse, uh, verse 14. The Lord God said to the snake, because you have done this, curse to you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. You will eat, the d- eat dust all the days of your life. The woman then receives a curse. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbirth uh, um, very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Childbearing will become very painful from now on. And there will be conflict in marriage. What exactly your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you is not entirely clear. But the rest of the Bible is is ambivalent about desire. It It is a dangerous thing. Lots of good about it, but the, but also, but but also it drives us in ways that we can't control. And uh, the the statement "He will rule over you" it, it is deeply significant, because up to now, human beings have only ruled over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and so on. They have not ruled over one another. But here it is. It appears in the curse on their relationship. If you want to call it patriarchy, you, you can, I think. That kind of simple relationship between the man and the woman that he rules her is not in God's created order. It is in God's fallen order. And then there is the man. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree, which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken for dust you are, and to dust you, uh, you will return. Notice a number of things. The, the, the snake and the woman, they receive a curse that, uh, that on them, that affects them. But to the man, he said, cursed is the ground, cursed is the land, cursed is the earth. Just as the sin only reached its, its fullness when the man uh, ate it. So the curse in one sense only reaches its fullness, is only described in its fullness as it falls on Adam. He bears that responsibility. And notice that it is death that comes through Adam till you return to the dust. And notice the work becomes toil. That's for a future week for us to look at. There are immediate consequences. There are curses. And there there is a a shadow of the curse that immediately starts to fall on them. Let me show you a couple, for instance. Verses 23 and 24. The Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After after he drove the man out, he placed in the east of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth. 
the guard the way to the tree of life. Here we, here we have, first of all, they were hiding, but now there is, there is this judicial banishment and indeed angels and swords to stop them coming back to God. This separation of human beings from God, which we experience, which we know, which is endemic to the human condition. Here it is. It is part of the shadow of the, uh, of the curse. And conflict rumbles through now, not only the rest of the, uh, the early chapters of Genesis, but the whole of the rest of the Bible and the whole of the rest of history in every culture and in yours and my experience. First of all, Adam names his wife Eve. I said last week that is really significant because up to then he'd only been given permission to name the animals. But now he names his wife Eve. And not only that, because she will be the mother of all the living. In other words, he's going to give her a name according to what she can do for him. It is not good. And it won't be long before their two sons, Cain and Abel, are in conflict so that Cain kills his brother. Murder is one generation from the first sin. And Cain himself realizes that he is at odds with all other human beings. He cries out to God, I will be a restless wanderer. Do you feel that? Do you feel that your experience in some ways is like a restless wanderer? Not safe, not at home, amongst uh, human society which can be threatening. It's not the only experience that we have. But if you wanted to isolate what is wrong with the world, many of us would say human conflict. Here's its origin. Is there any hope? Well, you see, there, 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 there are a number of uh, different elements of hope in this story that we can only simply spot this morning because we're going to have to explore it more in subsequent weeks. The curses, for instance, um, are all carefully limited. Did you notice, I will greatly increase your your pain in childbearing, he says to the woman, for instance. Not that you will not bear children. It will, it will now be hard, but you will give birth to children. That is important. They had been given a mandate to multiply and fill the earth, and the mandate has not gone. It has been made difficult. Or did you notice with the man that uh, I will, uh, 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 with painful toil... He says, you will eat of the land. They had been given every, every herb of the, of the field, as it, as, it, as it says, to eat. And they still will. It's now just going to be hard. The mandate that human beings had given is not lost. It is marred. The only one who uh, is warned that uh, he, his uh, uh, future is not so good, is the snake. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That ancient serpent has... Uh, the book of Revelation describes it, the devil. He will be crushed. There is hope. There is hope as well in that God makes provision for us within our fallen world. The man, uh, the, the man and the woman are given animal skins by God as clothes now. That is surely significant. 
They are neither left naked nor left to clothe themselves on their own. God says, now that you are fallen, now that you have lost your innocence, I will make a provision for you. Which is why, I'm very relieved to say, Christians still wear clothes. Though there were a group in the 17th century called the Adamites who decided they shouldn't, but uh, that's another story. They were hopelessly naive about what it meant to be a Christian, the Adamites. They thought you could just go back to the Garden of Eden. No, you can't. But God will provide for us within this fallen world and enable us to live a life that is at least doing battle with the effects of the fall. That, of course, anticipates something that the New Testament then starts to talk to us about. In the New Testament, Christians are not described as being once again made naked, but as, once ag as, as now being clothed with Christ. Because, you see, that promise of the crushing of the serpent was finally fulfilled in Christ. Listen to these words, for instance, from Colossians chapter 2. You were dead in your sins, but God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. He cancelled the charge of legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, that is, all the spiritual forces that are surrounding the devil, Satan, Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. We will explore it in more depth in future weeks, but let me just highlight it now. The power that the devil has now not only to, is not only to deceive and to distort and to, to uh, uh, drag us down in that way, to lie. But he has the power to accuse because we heeded his words. The meaning of the word Satan, the accuser. But not if you're a Christian. Because God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for those sins. To be obedient in another garden. And to pay the penalty for our sins on the cross. And so he can no longer accuse us. Jesus triumphed over him. By the cross. And now. The true hope. That was always there in Genesis 3. Is bright and shining before us. That God has fully forgiven us. That God will raise us from the dead. As he did Jesus. And he will place us in a new creation. Where there is no more mourning. Or crying. Because now the presence of God is with man. What's wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton is famous for having aphoristically answered that in a newspaper letter. Saying, sir, what's wrong with the world? I am. G.K. Chesterton. But what hope is there? Well, that would be Jesus. You, you may not be yet persuaded because we are, have only been laying foundations. If you're not yet, keep coming. We're going to be looking at some more 
truths as they unfold in the Bible. But if you are persuaded, then you have a diagnosis which is more profound than anything else you could imagine. And you have a hope that nothing else will offer you. Rejoice. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we saw our own hearts, our own situation exposed to us in that story. We sensed how this encapsulates all the evils of this world. We bow before you, Lord. And we say again, as we said earlier, please forgive us that it was not only Adam and Eve, it was me. But we ask, Lord, fill us with hope as we trust in Jesus. That he has forgiven every sin and failure, past, present and future through his death on the cross. That he has given us a sure and certain hope through his resurrection. And that as we trust in him, we can be confident that there is nothing in all creation that can separate us from your love. Fill our hearts with that by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.